Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. This episode is airing on Tuesday, February 22nd, 2022. This is Shannon, and I am here with an author interview. And of course, I have some fantastic new books to tell you about. But of course, before we get to the new books, I am going to share an interview that I did right at the end of 2021. And this is with author Carrie Mayer. We talked about her January release, The Paris Bookseller. We talk a lot about historical fiction, um, the roles that bookstores play. Um, I love Carrie's second novel, The Girl in White Gloves, so we talk a little bit about that. So if you are a fan of historical fiction and or the city of Paris, this is an interview that you won't want to miss. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro Podcast. This is Shannon, and my guest today is author Carrie Mayer, whose novel, The Paris Bookseller, will be releasing on January 11th, 2022. We are recording this a little over a month before publication, so I feel like we're kind of delving into the future a little bit here. But Carrie, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you so much for having me, Shannon. I'm really excited to be here with you and chat about the book. Awesome. So can we start out with you giving listeners a little bit of an introduction to The Paris Bookseller? Right. So The Paris Bookseller is about the amazing Sylvia Beach, which is not a name, not a household name, but her very famous bookstore that she opened in Paris in 1919 is. She opened the original Shakespeare and Company bookstore in Paris, and it quickly became the home of the lost generation writers. You know, all those famous American writers from the 20s and 30s that you know. Ah, uh, yes. Ernest Hemingway, you know, just all of them. They all went to Shakespeare and Company, spent quite a lot of time there. Um, you know, Ernest Hemingway was a lifelong friend of hers. Um, so, and as if that wasn't enough, accomplishment enough, um, she also published the very first edition of James Joyce's Ulysses in 1922. So my book is coming out right before the, um, the hundredth anniversary of her edition of Ulysses. Um, and she published it um, when, after all of the American and British uh, publishers withdrew their offers to publish it, because oh. in 1921, um, it was convicted of obscenity. It was, it was, and became a banned book in 1921. So she we were really banning books in 1921. Oh, yes, yes. And using the post office <laughs> as an instrument of censorship. It's a great story. Oh, yeah, it's really it's really an amazing story. And so, like, even after she published it in 1922, she then found ways of smuggling it back into the United States um, alongside, as I like to say, alongside the illegal liquor because <laughs> of was prohibition. Um, and so alcohol was also illegal in the United States during that decade. Um, and so there are some, you know, fun stories, stories, no spoilers, though, on no spoilers, but there are some very fun stories, one of which does include Ernest Hemingway, um, which is true. Um, he really did help her um, smuggle um, Ulysses back into the United States. So it's cool. Good stuff. 
So what sort of sparked your interest in writing Sylvia's story? So, you know, I love this question for this book in particular, because it's actually crazy to me that it didn't dawn on me earlier to write about Sylvia Beach, because I've known about her story and been carrying it around kind of in my heart and head for more than 20 years. Um, When I was an undergrad, I went to the University of California at Berkeley. I was an English major. And as as anyone who knows uh, Berkeley, the town or the campus knows, there's some, you know, fantastic, um, you know, independent bookstores, most of which also sold used books, you know, for the college students, right? Ah, yes. Yes. And, you know, you know, those great bins of used books that like they sell for like a dollar in front of in front of those kinds of bookstores. Um, I discovered Sylvia's uh, like a used copy of Sylvia's own memoir, which is called Shakespeare and Company in one of those bins. And, you know, I was an English major who happened to also be obsessed with the 20s. You know, um, uh, The Great Gatsby has always been one of my absolute favorite books. Um, and I, I really enjoy, you know, Hemingway's novels. And I was just really into that time period. So I thought, oh, I'm going to read this book. So I took it home. I, I bought it. I took it home. I read it and I was just entranced by her story. You know, I, I that was when I learned that she published Ulysses. You know, she was friends with all these writers. And, and I just thought, oh, this, this is just fabulous. And it kind of just became got filed away in my mind under good to know. <laughs> yes. Um, right. You know, as many things do. And so fast forward 20 years, here I am writing, you know, biographical fiction. Um, I wrote about Kathleen Kick Kennedy and then I wrote about Grace Kelly. And um, very quickly, when I started thinking about a subject for a third novel, Sylvia occurred to me like it's just almost right away. Um, and I, I was thrilled that, you know, my publisher was excited by her as a as a subject. And I got to write this this story. It was just such a treat to be able to do this. And, you know, we all kind of have heard about Shakespeare and Company, at least kind of in passing. You know, you know, kind of about that scene in the 1920s in Paris. So the the setting is familiar, but I'm very, very excited to sort of have the layers peeled back here a little bit so that we get to know kind of the person who is responsible for all of it. Yeah, the, the you know, Sylvia and also I think, you know, I want to say two things at this point. So, you know, there is a current Shakespeare and Company in Paris today. Um, and it was a store that was a that was not Sylvia's store, but it is very much an homage to Sylvia's store. And then if you go to the, the current Shakespeare and Company, which is just beautifully set on the Seine in Paris, like, and if you, and it has an adjacent cafe, if you order a coffee and drink it, you will be like in their sidewalk cafe, you will be looking like right at Notre Dame Cathedral. It's like right there. <laughs> um, so it's really, it's a special place even now. But that store was opened um, in 1951 by a different American bookseller named George Whitman. Um, and it has some terrific stories of its own. Um, we can sort of, you know, return to that um, later if you want to talk more about that. So, so you know, Shakespeare and Company is alive and well in Paris. Um, and, and Sylvia was actually a, a regular at that bookstore in, in the 50s, at, you know, as she was just living, living her life in Paris. Um, she had to shut her own store down in 1941, um, and she never reopened. Um, but, you know, the other thing about peeling back the layers um, about Sylvia's store is one of the things that I was so intrigued by when I began to do research for this book, because she does not talk very much about this in her own memoir, is the fact that Shakespeare and Company, in some way, the, the original Shakespeare and Company that was that was hers in the 20s and 30s, was in some ways two stores. Because her romantic partner and in some ways business partner, they didn't they did they weren't business partners in the sense that they they shared funds, but um, they were they consulted each other all the time was um, a woman named Adrienne Monnier, who op- who had a French language bookstore and lending library on the same block in Paris, the Rue de l'Odéon. And her bookstore was called La Maison des Amis de Livre the house of the friends of books. And she had opened it in 1915. And it was a, it was a, 
an essential destination for Bohemian Paris. And that was part of what inspired Sylvia to open her English language bookstore and lending library across, you know, in the same neighborhood. Initially, it was actually in a different location. So I, 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 that's one of the most remarkable things about this story is that, you know, the, the writers um, who, and readers who went to Shakespeare and Company were also going to Adrienne's store just across the street. So two stores, two languages. Yes. That sort of served the same people for, I'm guessing, you know, different, different aspects of what they were looking for. Yes. Yes. Um, you know, there's, you know, in the thirties, you know, and there were, there were some people who, there, there were some Americans who didn't speak much French and, you know, focused more on Shakespeare and company. And then there were, but there were quite a lot of French writers who were very interested in Sylvia's store because they did read and speak English. And prior to Sylvia's store, you know, Sylvia was, for a long time, Sylvia's was the only place where you could get English language books. Um, and, and also like the, the, all the avant-garde literary journals at the time, you know, she stocked, she was a very well-stocked place. And so if you were a French, if you were Jean Cocteau or André Guide or one of the other French intellectuals and you were interested in what was being published in English at the time, um, Sylvia's place was the only game in town for quite a long time. Um, and so that also made it a really special place. And similarly, Adrienne's shop was the only game in town for avant-garde literature uh, in French. Ah, okay. So what was your research process? Like, I know that you said that you read Sylvia's memoir you know, quite a long time ago. So what did you do beyond that to really get to know her as a character and to form your like strong sense of, of place that you would have needed to kind of create to recreate her world? Yeah. So, well, so first, the first thing I did was I reread her memoir. <laughs> um, and then there's a there's a definitive biography of her by um, a it's called Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation by Noelle Riley Fitch. And it's been out for quite a long time. I think it came out in the 80s. Um, and I read that cover to cover with a pencil in hand, you know, and it, that is all marked up. Um, and, uh, you know, I also like took notes and things because, you know, um, Noelle uh just did extraordinary research um for her for her this nonfiction book about Sylvia. So that was indispensable to me. Um, you know, there are also volumes of her letters to James Joyce and to others that I read. Um, you know, uh there's a terrific resource um out of Princeton, New Jersey, uh, I mean Princeton University. Princeton owns all of Sylvia's papers because her father um was a pastor connected with the university. Um so all so she left all of her papers to Princeton. And Princeton has actually, this is actually great for, for listeners to just go do. You could do this while you're listening or when you finish with the podcast is you can, you can Google the Shakespeare and Company project out of Princeton. And what they have done is digitized all of her library cards. So, wow. uh, you know, because her actually Shakespeare and Company was more library than store. Most of these writers who went to her store couldn't afford books. But so they would take out a subscription, which did cost a modest amount of money. And and then they would they would use there was a portion of the store that was just books that that, that were a library that came and went. And so you can look up anybody, you know, Hemingway, James Joyce, Ezra Pound, um, uh, you know, Simone de Beauvoir, all of these people. And it's all they've all been digitized. And you can see all the books that they checked out. Whoa. It's so cool. <laughs> Um, so, you know, I used that um, a bit. Um, and uh, the other thing I did get to. And so, you know, there was a number of other nonfiction books that I also read. Um, you know, there are two excellent books about the history of the publication of Ulysses. One was by um, Kevin Birmingham. The other was by Joe Hassett. And both of those books have come out in the last just in the last few years. So their research was extremely up to date. I learned a great deal um, from those books. And, you know, there was a smattering of others. Um, you know, the, one of the good pieces of information or good news for me about research for this book was that, you know, because I was a, a young writer and reader obsessed with the 20s, I got to bring forward 
you know, many decades of just personal reading to this book. You know, I had already read A Movable Feast by Ernest Hemingway and The Sun Also Rises. And, you know, I definitely I picked those books back up again and, and dipped in and out just to sort of refresh my memory. Um, but I could kind of bring bring all of that forward, which was like a real treat to get to do. Um, at the risk of going on, I did also, um, before the pandemic hit in August of 2019, I was able to go to Paris. I had been to Paris before, but it had been really a long time. Um, so, and, and so I got to go to Paris and just, and I, I really wanted to stay kind of in Sylvia's neighborhood, which of course is now one of the most desirable neighborhoods in Paris to stay in, you know, the fifth. Oh, yes. <laughs> right. So. It was actually, and I knew a, a very good friend of mine who lives in London was going to stay with me for part of the time. So I, I was on Airbnb, like looking for a place to stay, getting more and more depressed that there was nothing in my price range. And suddenly, you know how like, you know, these apps like show you suggestions? Yes. One of the suggestions <laughs> actually said James Joyce flat. And I thought, oh, no. <laughs> All right. Right. And so I go to the pictures and indeed there is a picture of a plaque on a Paris building in, you know, in the neighborhood um, that says, you know, James Joyce and his family lived here in the summer of, two, of uh, uh, 1921 while he was writing Ulysses. Um, Beautiful. And furthermore, it, it was the same flat that was actually owned by a French writer named Valerie Larbeau, who was a very good friend of Sylvia's. And in her memoir, she talks about this flat and the fact that, J that Joyce stayed there. <laughs> anyway, long story short, after a little bit of haggling and negotiation, uh, I was able to stay there. <laughs> um, and, you know, just to let the air out a little bit, nobody knows really which flat it was, but it was definitely one of the apartments in the building, a bu building that was on this lovely, leafy private courtyard, sort of set back from the main street um, in Paris. And and so that was just magic getting to stay there, you know, um, and also um on like my second day, I was wandering around the neighborhood and I look up and I see another plaque that says Ernest Hemingway stayed here. It was his first Paris apartment. <laughs> so I was really in it, you know, in this neighborhood. So it was really terrific to get to do that. I am so glad that you were able to travel to Paris like before the pandemic hit us and kind of locked everything down in a way that we, I think, you know, we're not we're not prepared for. And I've talked to a lot of authors over the past year and a half, you know, who say that like they couldn't travel mm -hmm. to do the research that they would have loved to do for their writing. Um, and so I'm glad that you were able to do that before all of this hit. Me too, because, you know, I don't know if you ever watched the show or, you know, Sex in the City, um, but they they. They talk, they always, whenever Sarah Jessica Parker would win yet another Emmy <laughs> um, or Golden Globe, she would say, you know, she would like dedicate it to New York City, who she always says was like the fifth lady, like the fifth friend. And I, I really knew that because Paris was in the title of this book and Paris is just such a mythical place for this time period. I really wanted Paris to be a character. So I, I am just so grateful that I was able to go there and kind of reacquaint myself with Paris before I started writing the book. That is one of my favorite parts of historical fiction when an author can recreate the setting in such a vivid way so that it feels almost like a character in and of itself. Yeah, me too. Same, same. And, you know, I'm not a, it's funny, like as a reader and as a writer, I'm not a huge fan of like long descriptive passages. I used to get so frustrated in college when I had to read <laughs> on a party where like he would just go on and on and on about Wessex. I was just like, okay, we get it. It's beautiful. <laughs> like, so for me, like the challenge is like, I want to say just enough. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not too much, just enough. Well, I think back, you know, in like the time when a lot of the classics were written, those long kind of flowery passages yes. were like a huge thing. Um, I think we can still find them today in, in some ways. 
but I think it looks a lot different. And the style of those passages has changed where I feel like I can I can tolerate them now a little better than I could, you know, reading some of the the earlier writers. Yes, yes. I remember the first time I read Jane Eyre and I saw that it said someone unclosed their eyes. I'm like, what? <laughs> Open? Like, <laughs> like no one says that. Like no one talks like that. <laughs> I will unclose the door now. Yes, yes, yes. I know that's so true. Although I love Jane Eyre. It's been years since oh, I've Oh, I love Jane Eyre too. Have you reread it as an as an adult? Yes. Yes. Like um, myself. And it's you know, it's it's interesting because the story I feel like stayed the same for me, but I noticed, you know, a lot more detail than I did when I read it, you know, in the eighth grade when so many people read Jane Eyre when they're probably a little too too young for it. <laughs> Well, I mean, not right, not too young because it's like risque, but like you can't no. get all the nuances of it, right? Like a hundred percent, right? Exactly. Like it's a it's a complex story, and because of the way it's written, it's it's dense, it's heavy, um, and as a, like a you know just a teenager, um, I don't think I fully understood everything that Bronte was trying to get at when she wrote it. As an adult, you know, I could like dive into that a little better. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Same. I, I think that the last time I've read it more than once, I think that the last time I read it was in college. I'd like to reread. Um, Cause I would also really like to reread uh, little women. Um, oh, little really women. All of the, you know, all of the film adaptations of it. Um, but I think that I would get more out of that now too. Have you read any of the kind of like modern um, like retakes of Little Women that have come out over the past little while? Well, you know, my very good friend, Elise Hooper, wrote the uh, the other Alcott, which was, you know. Ah, which, yes. Yes. Um, right. But not, but no, I mean, not, not beyond that one. <laughs> so there is, um, it's like a, a duology and it's um, Megan Joe and Beth and Amy by Virginia Cantra. Hmm. And it sort of takes the the March sisters and moves them forward to now. And it kind of updates, like, who would Joe have been if hmm. she lived, you know, like today? And I thought it was so, so clever because, you know, when I read Little Women, like, it was so steeped in, like, the, the 1860s. You know, you, you right. knew... You could just sort of breathe in that time. And yet I was living, you know, I was a kid in the late 80s. And it was relatable to me in some ways, but not in others. And so it was really interesting to me to go back now and read these sort of retakes and think like, oh, you know, so if Joe had grown up kind of when I did, you know, right. maybe this is how things would have been for her. Yeah. Um, and it was just a really clever idea, like not rewriting Little Women in the way that you would you would think in like a, a retelling, but bringing it forward. Um, and it's it's something that I, I really do recommend to people who loved the story of Little Women mm. as as a young reader to really look at that as an adult and and bring it forward. And I thought that Cantra did just a wonderful job recreating all of the like nods that we love so much about little women. Yeah. But making them feel contemporary. Well, that that's a great recommendation. My daughter who's 11 um, has, she, there's a couple of like updated, like middle grade versions also of little, little women for younger readers. Um, you know, there's a graphic novel version with oh. modern, modern version of um, the four sisters who might actually only be friends Anyway, so I have to admit I have not read them, but they've come like highly recommended and they're they're sitting on my daughter's shelf. I think she's read them. Um, but yeah, it's really it's kind of like um, it's a remarkable world unto itself. I guess what has been done with little women over time, especially recently. I mean, um, not unlike, you know, the Jane Austen phenomenon. Ah, yes. So many like Austen 
retellings um like that are are lovely romances like in and of themselves yeah but are also just really clever at again kind of bringing those themes forward yep 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 so the paris bookseller is almost out in the world so what can readers expect next from you well, I'm not talking about the next book yet. I'm sorry. Ah! I, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> but it, I, what I will, I will dangle a carrot, which is to say that information on that book will be coming um, not too long after Paris Bookseller comes out. So um, you don't have to. Uh, wait. You won't have to wait too too long. <laughs> so I can't like I can't bribe you to give me like no little smart. bits of information. <laughs> um, I will. So let, I'll say this: it's about a really strong and amazing group of women in the early seventies. So a totally okay, a totally different time and place. Okay, but still I, I, I can... was born. <laughs> barely. I can get barely. Out of I was that. born in 1975. Um, okay, so I was born in 80. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> so still before we were born, but yeah. kind of creeping up on it here. Yes, 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 yes. 100%. So anyway, so that's that's as much as I can give you today. But I'm so I'm sorry. Okay. That. <laughs> that's okay. I will. I will keep an eye out for All right. it. Great. And see, you know what what I see when it comes out. Well, this is a good time to actually, for anyone listening, to plug my Instagram account, <laughs> which oh. is where where I am most active on social media um, and make all my big announcements. I, I do. I, I am also on Facebook, and both both uh, Facebook and Instagram are like at Carrie Mayer writer. Um, so you can find me in both places. And so, you know, if you want, if you want like news about events, cause I'm doing some virtual events for Paris bookseller, as well as some live events, um, virtual help, events. Yeah. Um, I know it's, it's, you know, that has been one of the real gifts of the pandemic have been, I think. Yes. Um, virtual events where, you know, I, you know, speaking of my friend Elise, you know, I was able to participate in her book launch for her, la- her previous book. She's got another one coming out this March, but for fast girl, Girls. Oh, I love you know, fast girls. The summer of the pandemic, right? Yes. Um, I was able to participate in her online book launch and she was out there in Seattle. I was in Massachusetts. I was actually on vacation on the Cape, but I was able to do it. You know, it was just an hour of my, you know, day. It was really, yes. really kind of a magical thing. Um, so. Yeah, Fast Girls, I thought, was amazing. I'm not a big sports person, so I don't necessarily, you know, want to read a bunch of books about sports. But, like, that whole, like, women's Olympic running, I just thought was, like, so, so amazing. Yeah, same. Same, exactly the same. So it is now time for me to ask you the thing that I most love. To ask authors, and it's not oh. like you know what is your next book? Okay, all right. Okay. <laughs> and we already did that. We already did that. Okay, what but is that, it? that is that is a question that I do love to <laughs> ask, but this one is my favorite. What have you read recently that you want the world to know about? Oh gosh! All right, so um, I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm a huge audiobook listener. Yay! <laughs> um, Huge audiobook listener. Um, in fact, it's where I do all my pleasure reading, um, is, is audiobooks because essentially all so my happy. old fashioned reading, like with my, with my eyes, um, is research or blurbing, you know, of some sort. Um, oh, yes. so, um, I, well, I, so I will say I am almost done with Kate Quinn's next novel, The Diamond Eye, which is terrific. So I'll definitely. I am so jealous. Uh, um, well, so I'm, I feel very lucky that I got an early copy of that. So, so that is terrific. And that's coming out in March of 2022. Um, but other really terrific books, um, I listened to, it is quite long, but worth the investment of time. It's called The Women of Chateau Lafayette by, um, oh, yes. Yeah. Stephanie Dre. Stephanie Dre. And it's great as an audiobook also. 
Um, the, the, she has, you know, three characters, um, uh, one of whom is uh, Adrienne Lafayette, um, you know, Lafayette, the, America's favorite fighting Frenchman's wife. Um, yes. And 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 then one um, narrator, I'm, I'm terrible with names, but another narrator who, who narrates um, her section during World War One and another one during World War Two. Um, and she braids them together beautifully. It is a com- total page turner. It is. And I learned so much. Um, so I, I just can't recommend that highly enough. Um, I also really loved The Social Graces by um, Renee Rosen that came out um, earlier this year. That was really terrific about um, a comp- the, the competition in the Astor family um, during the, uh, the Gilded Age. Um, that was really terrific. Um, I'm trying to think of something that's maybe like not historical fiction. Um, this isn't for like lack of loving books. It's just sometimes like I, I draw a blank. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know what was another absolutely fabulous audiobook and it's contemporary is The Gunkle by Stephen Rowley. Oh, I've heard really uh, good things about that. I haven't uh, read it yet. Can't recommend it highly enough. And even more of a treat, Stephen himself reads it, which I'm going to be honest. I was like, oh, Stephen, <laughs> do you really want to do that? And like within five minutes, I was like, yes, I am so glad he did this. I mean, he's a an incredible reader. It was it's just such a treat to hear a writer a, like a gifted reader, like performer, read their own work. Um, it's really I can't I, I it's just great. I am so glad to know that you love audio. We talk a lot about audiobooks um, on Book Bistro, which I suppose makes sense. We are a book of uh, a book of no, a group of blind women who talk about books. So yeah. <laughs> we talk a lot about audiobooks, um, ebooks too, but audiobooks are are very special, and I'm always so happy to hear when people choose to read audio, like not because they have to. But no, because they, they love to. Yes, I love it. And, you know, some books, I can't even imagine having not listened to them. Uh, you know, like the Gunkle in some ways is like that because, you know, because Stephen read it and it was such like a treat to like hear him read it. Um, have you have you listened to Trevor Noah's Born a Crime? Yes. Oh, my yes. God. Like, that I'm is so, so lovely. Glad. I feel like I've said attributed so many things to Elise in this conversation, but Elise was the one actually who said you have to listen to that and not read it. (laughs) Yes. Because Trevor Noah does such an incredible job of reading it um, and he performs it. He does all the voices. I mean, it's just incredible. Oh, and he is just so, so skilled. I guess it makes sense. You know, it's his, his life that he's talking about. So who better to bring it to life? But I feel like the more sort of the mainstream picks up on audiobooks and the more that people are choosing it as a way to read, you know, that kind of keeps this lane of accessibility open in a way that is necessary for so many people. You know, it wasn't until people wanted to listen to books while they drove that I didn't have to wait a year and a half to two years for a new release to be put into specialized audio through the Library of Congress. And if that book was not a bestseller, it was very unlikely that was ever going to happen. That is fascinating. And I'm so glad to know that. Um, cause now, I mean, we're living, I feel like in a golden age of audiobooks, like everything yes. comes out, like at the same time as the book release, right? Yes. But, like there, you know, there are just a, an embarrassment of riches of great readers out, out there. I mean, like, you know, I've, I've been given choices of readers for, for all of all three of my books. And like, I couldn't have possibly gone wrong with any choice <laughs> that I, that I could have made. Right. There's just like, like wonderful talent out there um, reading these books. Um, and, you know, it's funny, like people do sometimes still say, but is it really reading? And I'm like, why is it even a question? Like, oh. it's reading. 
<laughs> like, um, yeah, I mean, you know, and I also, I was one of those people who started listening to audiobooks when I drove to work. This is now a long time ago. And it was, I was, I had a CD player in my car. I think this is long before, like, you could have a subscription service. Um, but I would go to the library and, like, check them out of the yes. library. Um, and that's how I listened to them. And of course, because they were CDs. Like they would skip. Sometimes I would get to like these really like exciting sections and it would just stop working. And I would be like cursing the CD in the car. Like, oh, try to when they would unravel. News. I don't want to listen to the news. Um, Anyway. So, yes, I'm I'm just I'm thrilled to know that it, it like it keeps a lane open for people who really, like you say, like need need them. Like, so that's terrific. You know, I read a lot of things now that are done as ebooks that are not, you know, technically available in audio. And, and I'm always so, so grateful for that because, you know, not every book is produced in audio, but those that are, I think it's just so important that people recognize that audiobooks are books. Yes. Yes. They and are. that, you know, you're not cheating. Nope. If, you listen to a book. There are, you know, all these reading challenges out there now. And people are like, oh, I don't know. You know, do audio books count? Yes. And it's like, yes, yes, they count. Like, we, we shouldn't have to keep having these conversations about what what counts as as reading. You know what? I'm going to give everyone listening the ultimate, the ultimate person, the, ult- the ultimate answer to this, does it count? Stephen King listens to audiobooks. <laughs> it's true. Stephen King, how so many people do? Huge audiobook consumer. So if if it's good enough for Stephen King, it is good enough for all the rest of us. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to thank you so incredibly much for taking time out, not of just your pre-release schedule, but you know we're getting close to the holidays now, and so I'm really glad that you were able to take some time today to chat with me about your work and things that you love um, about books. Well, Shannon, this has been such a pleasure and I'm always, I'm, I'm glad we got to like share our love audiobooks and yes. all, all the wonderful things. So this was a real treat. Thank you for inviting me. You are so welcome. And again, this is the Paris bookseller by Carrie Mayer. It will come out on January 11th of 2022. I have to really get used to saying 2022 soon. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> All right. So let's talk about new books. There are some great ones. Not that that should surprise anyone. So, I'm first going to mention the one book that you've heard us talk about before. This is one that Stacy mentioned on our most anticipated releases of February episode. And it is The Lady Tempts an Heir, Gilded Age Heiresses, book three by Harper St. George. This is a historical romance. So now I want to move on to some books that you haven't heard us talk about. I'm going to start with some urban fantasy, and I am so delighted that Yasmin Gallinorn's new series starts now. This is The Poison Forest. It is the first book in her Hedge Dragon series, which is a spinoff of her Wild Hunt series. This is utterly fantastic. It has a slightly different feel because technically it doesn't It can't be classified as urban fantasy. It's more just like fantasy romance. Um, It's set in a world that is not ours, although you will see some connections to our world. And I'm wondering if the main character will end up um, in our world at some point. You do not have to have read The Wild Hunt to read this. I loved it so, so much. It's a very quick read. I gobbled it down, and I'm hoping for more very, very soon. This is The Poisoned Forest, Hedge Dragon, book one by Yasmin Gallinorn. Carrie Arthur has a new series starting this week as well. This is Crown of Shadows, Relic Hunters, book one. And this is about ancient gods who have hidden some treasure with pixies to guard it. And now our intrepid heroine is trying to uncover these treasures. 
So this is Crown of Shadows, and it's the first book in the Relic Hunter series by Carrie Arthur. We then move on to Amelia Hutchins, who is releasing the eighth book in her Fae Chronicles series. This is Whispers of Fate. Um, Hutchins is an author that I have wanted to try for quite a while. Um, I know that she writes some darker urban fantasy um, that focuses on the Fae. Um, her heroes seem to either be characters that you'll love or that you'll despise, depending on where you fall on romance heroes. Um, Brooke, I think, has read a couple of these and has enjoyed them. So this one is Whispers of Fate. It is Fae Chronicles, book eight, by Amelia Hutchins. Michelle Sagara is releasing the second book in her Wolves of Elantra series. This is Sword and Shadow. So it started out um, with the Chronicles of Elantra, and these are books like Cast in Secret, Cast in Silence, Cast in Shadow, um, and I think there are about 15 of them now. Um, I own the first one, and I really do want to read it. I just haven't gotten to it yet because there are so many books. Um, Kristen talked about the first book in Wolves of Elantra when it came out last year. So this is the second one. It is Sword and Shadow, and it's by Michelle Sagara. Then we have The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea. This is a standalone YA fantasy by Axie O, and it is about mermaids. Uh, maybe some sirens. The synopsis was a little vague, but it intrigued me just because it has to do with water and kind of the mythology surrounding it. And so it felt like something that I wanted to mention here because we don't really have a ton of, you know, kind of under the sea stories. So this one is The Girl Who Fell Beneath the Sea, and it's by Axio. A little bit of time travel sci-fi here. This is the Paradox Hotel. It's written by Rob Hart, who wrote The Warehouse a couple of years ago. Um, but this one is about a hotel that's kind of like a way station for time travelers. So I'm pretty intrigued by time travel in general, and I cannot wait for this one. I love the idea of like this place that you go specifically to time travel and that like you get to somehow determine like where you're going to go. Um, I'm guessing there's all kinds of like scientific stuff that they use to determine it. But I want to dive into this. It's the Paradox Hotel by Rob Hart. Moving on to some mysteries here, we have The Verifiers. This is by Jane Peck, and I was super interested in this pretty much from like when I first saw the synopsis. It's about a woman who is, as her career, a verifier. So somehow she verifies information that people put online, maybe to like catch, like catch catfishers or something. I'm not, I'm not clear why she does this. Um, and one of the people that she's trying to verify ends up dead. And so she starts to investigate this. Um, I just think this is a very unique concept. And I really love, I think I've said this before, when mysteries or really when any literature like, starts to incorporate the technology that is so much a part of our daily lives. So I'm very interested in this one. This is The Verifiers by Jane Peck. We also have a new Lucy Foley this week. This is The Paris Apartment. Um, there are a lot of books called The Paris Apartment. I know Kelly Bowen released one last year. Uh, I think there is one or two other ones. But this one, Lucy Foley wrote the guest list a couple of years ago that a lot of people really, really liked. So this is another, like people are locked in an apartment building. Something has gone terribly wrong. There is a murderer in their midst and all of this takes place in Paris. So it's The Paris Apartment by Lucy Foley. Then we have a new Stephanie Robel. This is This Might Hurt. Stephanie Robel wrote Darling Rose Gold a couple of years ago, um, which was a story of Munchausen by proxy. Her second novel is about a cult and two sisters. One of them 
is caught up in the cult. The other is trying to extricate her. Um, I read an early copy of this, and it was very, very good. Um, I think it wasn't quite as earth-shattering to me as Darling Rose Gold, but it felt still very, very um, intense, and I loved the portrayal of the cult. So this is This Might Hurt by Stephanie Robel. If you like art forgery, then this next book might be for you. It's Fake by Eric Katz, and it is a globe-trotting story of art forgery. I don't know a lot about art, and it's never been like one of my great passions, but I remember reading and falling in love with Sidney Sheldon's If Tomorrow Comes, like many years ago, and that character was kind of a con woman, and one of the things that she did was steal art, and so that kind of piqued my interest, and I'm going to check this one out um, just to see if it has kind of that same like high-stakes action feel that I remember from the Sheldon book. So it's Fake by Erica Katz. And let's have some romance. We'll start out with some historical romance. We have The Duke Gets Ravished, The Duke Hunt, book two by Sophie Jordan. Sophie Jordan is so, so talented in the numerous um genres that she writes in so she's done like some new adult she's done historical I think she's done some post-apocalyptic um she's got some like motorcycle club themed romance I've not read any of her historicals but the next time I'm in the mood for like some ballrooms and fancy dresses I might check this one out this is the duke gets ravished Duke Hunt, book two, by Sophie Jordan. We also have The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes. This is Last Chance Scoundrels, book one, by Eva Lee. And Eva Lee just makes me happy whenever I read one of her books, whether it's um, kind of the like lighter wallflower series that she's written, or just some of the more like socially uh, like socially themed romances that she's done. She just is one of those people who can always make me smile. Um, her writing is so fresh. And even though her characters are often like well ahead of their time, as is often the case in historical romance, I just find myself completely sucked in to the world that she's created. So I am always up for a new Eva Lee. And this one, The Good Girl's Guide to Rakes, Last Chance Scoundrels, book one, is definitely on my short list of things to read very, very soon. Contemporary romance, we have Sink or Swim, Shore Leave, book two by Annabeth Albert. And Albert is known for writing uh, very angsty male-male romances. Um, I've never read her, but I've heard so many good things about her. And people who are looking for contemporary romance that doesn't just feature, you know, the usual, like, man and woman um, really enjoy Albert's writing. So she is someone that I mention here. This is Sink or Swim, and it's Shore Leave, book two by Annabeth Albert. Next up is a book that I am so excited to read, partly just because of the title. This is Delilah Green Doesn't Care, Bright Falls, book one by Ashley Herring Blake. This is an author who has written YA up until this point and is now coming out with a rom-com that is lesbian themed and it looks like a ton of fun. It's about weddings and kind of a like second chance romance. Um, it is one that I will be reading so soon. Brooke has read, I think, a couple of Herring Blake's YA books. Um, and I just, I love when people branch out, try new things, and especially when you come up with a title like Delilah Green Doesn't Care. 
So this is the first book in the Bright Falls series, and once again, it is by Ashley Herring-Blake. Then we have The Secret Letters of Olivia Moretti by Jennifer Probst, and this is kind of romance, women's fiction. Um, it's about some estranged sisters who are going through their mother's um, estate after she passed, and they find a hidden trove of love letters to her from a man who isn't their father. And so they begin trying to uncover the secrets of their mother's past. So this is The Secret Love Letters of Olivia Moretti, and it is by Jennifer Probst. We then have I'm So Not Over You by Kasoko Jackson. This is a fake relationship, a little bit of a second chance romance, uh, kind of a foodie romance too, and it looks like so much fun. Um, Kasoko Jackson got his start writing YA science fiction and is branching out into rom-coms which, as I just said, makes me very, very happy. So this one is I'm So Not Over You, and it's by Kasoko Jackson. Then I'm going to end today with a young adult alternate history novel. This is Daughters of a Dead Empire by Carolyn Tara O'Neill. This is, as I said, alternate history set during the Russian Revolution, and it is about two young girls who make kind of uneasy allies as they're trying to escape from danger during the revolution. I remember reading my very first Russian Revolution novel, and it was Zoya by Danielle Steele. Way back, I was probably like 14. And I just remember being so entranced by the bravery that people displayed during, you know, the, the terror that must have gone on during the revolution. And ever since then, I've always been drawn to Russian revolution stories. So this is one that I will definitely be checking out. It is Daughters of a Dead Empire by Carolyn Tara O'Neill. And that is all I have for you today. It is the last Bookity Tuesday of February. Um, hopefully you are all doing well, finding lots of fantastic things to read. As always, I hope that I have expanded your TBR list at least a little bit. If I didn't manage to do that, there's always next week. like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, it kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.